Uh, I kind of like to think of the the functional aspect of mobility, right? Uh, one thing is the idea is to get from point A to point B, right? And there are certain aspects of it which don't change, at least in the foreseeable future. You're going to have wheels and surface and something to sit in. or and And then there is the experiential aspect of people saying, hey, I am outside the car. I have a certain lifestyle and an experience. As I transition into the car, you know, I want the same experience to come with me, right? Whether it's streaming music or, you know, whatever you're doing and the ease of things and so on. I think there'll be a lot more focus on that part of it. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. Um, as always, I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association, retired cannonball driver, host of the No Parking Podcast, and occasionally um, the director of special operations for Argo AI, but I don't represent them while on this show. Wow, that's quite the uh, intro, Alex. I'm Kirsten Korosek, and I have a very simple job. It's covering transportation for TechCrunch. My name is Ed Niedermeyer. I am the communications director for Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And um, I'm, I'm really excited about, about uh, the, the conversation we have uh, today because, um, you know, my, my book was really sort of uh, focused on the, the sort of coming together of, uh, you know, traditional automotive manufacturing and, and sort of that whole the, the industrial world uh, with, with sort of high tech um, uh, which, as we all know, are have been coming together for a while now. Um, Tesla, obviously, is one of the sort of case studies about how to sort of find a, a way, um, uh, you know, through this this sort of uh, convergence of, of two uh, areas that are both very similar, but also quite different in some ways. Um, we have the perfect guest to help us sort of look into this because he is uh, the uh, president and and I think either now or, or very soon to be the CEO of Magna International. Uh, Mr. Swami Kodagiri, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to be on the Atonicast. Oh, uh, thanks, Ed, and good afternoon, everyone. My, it's my pleasure to be on. So like you said, I'm currently the president, incoming CEO, January 1st, so I'll take the six weeks remaining. Excellent. <laughs> and I have to say, Swami, I am so thrilled that you're here without any communications or, or PR people, because it is so, it's so rare and wonderful to have someone of like yourself, who is not walled up and who will speak the truth. I, I don't think we usually get walled up. Uh, and today, uh, I think it. I was told it was going to be all about manufacturing. And they said, we don't understand anything you say anyway. So go ahead. <laughs> well, among the Tesla fanboys, that's undoubtedly true. Let us proceed. <laughs> yeah. So so let's start off. Okay. So so if you've been around the auto industry, certainly, um, you know, you you almost certainly know who, who Magna is, what they do. But um, but for those who maybe aren't familiar, uh, it's it's kind of hard to just sort of sum it all up really briefly. So um, Swami, why don't you just sort of walk us through sort of where where has um, um, sort of Magna been sort of throughout its history? And then we'll sort of get into maybe where it's where it's going. Um, yeah, I'll try to sum it up. Like you said, uh, it's Magna is a $40 billion uh, automotive Tier one, uh, number three in the world, uh, definitely by far number one in North America. Uh, we have 300 plus manufacturing locations in 27 different countries. Uh, 
just over 150 to 1,000 people uh, spread across the organization. Uh, a little bit unique, uh, we have a very broad product portfolio from the automotive industry. So we, we are, um, as you look at it from a product line perspective, uh, we are body and chassis systems. Uh, we are in the powertrain. We are uh, electronics. Uh, we are seeding. Um, and important, we also have mechatronics, uh, inside and outside mirrors, lighting. And to top it all off, we do contract vehicle manufacturing and full vehicle engineering. So I know it's a mouthful, but kind of gives you a perspective of what Magna is. Yeah, that is that is a lot of a lot of different things. Um, so so you're a supplier, right? So you supply components and assemblies to to uh, OEMs. Uh, you do contract engineering as well. Um, and then, and then, and then manufacturing, contract manufacturing. So that's really, in a way, like that's sort of the the full stack almost in in terms of a of an automotive company. You might you might be able to say, not a lot of companies do do all of those things, right? Yeah, definitely unique in the aspect of you know having that many uh, product lines. And not only do we have just the product line presence, but most of the products we are, you know, kind of in the market leader position in the top three, most of them. And like you said, the uniqueness is just the contract vehicle manufacturing. We uh, manufactured over, you know, 2 million vehicles. I think Tracy, or I, I can get you the exact number, but it's in millions. Uh, and we have been, uh, most of the vehicle manufacturing was done in Austria, uh, which is where our manufacturing uh, facility is for full vehicles. Uh, currently, we manufacture the Mercedes G-Wagon, uh, the BMW 5 Series. Um, we, we, we have, you know, over time, you know, manufactured pretty much all the Jeeps that were done in Europe. Uh, the Aston Martin, we currently do the Jaguar I-Pace and E-Pace, uh, so, and the list goes on. I want to just help people understand when a quote unquote legacy automaker, whether this Jaguar, BMW, or uh, any of the companies that you do contract manufacturing for, when they come to you uh, to, to ask you to, to build a vehicle for them, why are they doing that? I think there, there's a lot of you know belief in sort of vertical integration and all these other sorts of things right now. And so I think it can be hard for people to understand why is it that a company that does have, you know, a, infrastructure and, and experience with manufacturing, why would they come to you? What what kinds of vehicles, what kinds of projects, what are the, the things that make it make sense for, for, for you to do that for them rather than for them to do it themselves? Yeah, it, it, a very good question. Ed. I think there's a multiple set, uh, multiple reasons there, right? One, uh, we believe it's something that you need to have in terms of process and integration experience. And Magna has the history of doing that over, you know, with different OEMs, with volumes. Uh, and an important part is also the flexible manufacturing process and methodology. For example, you know, off the same lines, we have the electric vehicle as well as the ice engine vehicle coming through, right? We have made vehicles that were 10,000 per year. We have made vehicles that were 80 to 90,000, uh, you know, vehicles a year programs. Uh, so I think when they look at it, they, they're looking at their capacity. They're looking at how they can flex in some cases. In some cases, they're looking at a variant 
that they believe is coming off a platform and they want that platform to be done, uh, you know, without going through changing their lines, changing their uh, planning process and so on. And, you know, the third one is really the new entrants, right? They're kind of focusing on the consumer experience uh, and the business model, whether it be, you know, flexible leasing or subscription model or, you know, pay per mile usage or whatever that is. And, you know, they're, they're leveraging the value that we bring in terms of the knowledge that we have, understanding the systems, how the systems come together, how do you manufacture it, how do you scale, how do you productionize, you know, manage the value chain. Uh, all of that is something that we've done. And the differentiation is really in the consumer experience, which they're taking forward, right? And they don't have to worry about hitting the timelines and you know, uh, meeting the milestones, that's where we are able to bring value. So it's kind of a mix depending on whether you're an incumbent looking for a variant uh, or looking for certain peak volumes to be managed somewhere uh, or a completely new entrant. So you you brought up the um, the Jaguar I-PACE um, and E-PACE. And, you know, Magna is one of those companies that maybe the average person walking down the street might not know the name of, but they don't realize how actually it touches their lives in a way. And you just kind of describe that. But Magna is getting a lot more attention now because of some of these electric vehicle programs, specifically um, Jaguar. But my understanding is that there are some other companies that you're going to be working with in, in uh, specifically electric vehicle companies. Is that correct? Yeah, Kirsten, I think there's two aspects of it. When we talk about the, the Jaguar electric vehicle, that is the contract vehicle manufacturing and engineering of the vehicle. But overall, in if you look at the electrification side of things, we do components and systems for many other OEMs. Um, like we, we are supplying the e-drive for the MEB platform for Volkswagen in China, as an example. Um, we we have another North American OEM. I can name name it, but we also do the e-drive for them in China or will be right. Uh, they're just about launching and launching next year. Uh, so when you talk about the uh, Jaguar, that is just the electric vehicle uh, manufacturing piece, right? But uh, to pull on the thread a little bit more of what you said is you recently we announced uh, our agreement with Fisker. Uh, which is the full vehicle engineering and manufacturing of, uh, you know, the variant Ocean, right? Uh, which we're going to be doing in uh, the Europe uh, facility in Graz and Hoche. That's where we have it. And, you know, we're open to looking at beyond 2023 possible footprint in North America too. With Fisker or just with, uh, or, or with just in general and working with other com- companies? We we have been uh, talking to others, like in the public domain, we've talked about some discussions with Kenu, as you must have heard or read. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the uniqueness of Magna is because of the different product lines that I talked about and be able to look at all the systems coming together, right? If there's a new entrant that's thinking of, you know, coming into the automotive, most of them have a discussion with Magna. So there's a lot of discussions going on at any point of time. So in North America, when I say Fisker is one of them, uh, but we are open to the idea of having a footprint 
whether it's with Fisker or others, and even incumbent OEMs uh, that are looking for possible uh, EV or other variants they might want to make. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask one question, and then Alex will get the floor. Um, have you noticed just in the past year or so more interest from EV startups knocking on your door? I mean, I know you talk to a lot of them, but give us a sense of, is this just an anomaly or do you, are you seeing a steady ramping up of interest from, you know, more startups, uh, specifically ones that are trying to produce all electric vehicles? So Christian, I think, uh, it's not just about EVs, right? In the past where they have OEMs wanted variants off of a platform or niche vehicles or, you know, I call them volume leveling or peak slicing. Uh, all of those scenarios, uh, they have come to Magna, right? Uh, definitely with the startup scenario and call it not having the uh, barriers of entry of an engine and a transmission and, you know, getting onto the EV has enabled more new entrants to talk about it. So obviously that has increased the, 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 the discussions and the, uh, and the flow in the pipeline. So uh, I'm curious uh, about this uh, relationship. This is something that's mentioned on your wiki page that you build self-driving kits for Lyft. And so could you tell us a little bit about the relationship with Lyft regarding those kits? Um, how, uh, is this a retrofit onto vehicles? What is that about? So Alex, no, I, I think we were not building self-driving kits just to go back uh, three years or four years. Uh, we had a relationship with Lyft in terms of core development of the IP, uh, you know, working for the ADAS or the autonomous pack, right? And part of that agreement was as they start building, you know, whether it was the ADAS kits or the uh, the stack or retrofitting of the vehicles was one of the uh, commercial agreements contemplated, right? Ah. But, you know, we had a milestone. Uh, once that milestone was reached, we kind of continue to work, but not officially anymore, right? So that that's done. You might be talking or referring to us retrofitting the Waymo, Self-driving kit in vehicles. I'm just quoting from the wiki page from the Magna okay. Wiki. <laughs> you should get someone from communication should fix that reference. So. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so it was there was uh, work with Lyft in the past. We we had a partnership and we worked together. Uh, Waymo. We continue to uh, work on retrofitting or upfitting uh, the vehicles uh, with the uh, Waymo driver, if you want to call it. And then we're also uh, invested uh, in Waymo as an investor, right, in the last round. This is a fascinating time with all these startups, right? The auto industry was, hasn't been known for startups since, what, the, the 20s maybe at the, you know, was sort of the last time we saw this kind of big explosion 100 years ago, basically. And, and now all of a sudden we're sort of back in this era of, of startups. And um, it's been fascinating to watch. Some of them have, you know, already been really successful. Um, others have already come and gone. Um, and you know, some have gotten, you know, significant valuations based on, you know, but still there's a lot of questions about what they actually have and, and, and what's real. So my question is, and this is sort of one of the things I'm most interested in about, because when you when you decide to manufacture something from someone, whether it's a, as a supplier or as a, a contract manufacturer, that's a, a leap of faith, right? You have to start making investments um, and you have to have 
I assume a pretty high level of confidence in, in that company that you're going to partner with. So how do you approach that? How do you know when a company is for real? Uh, and also not just for real, but also, uh, you know, a company that you're going to be able to, to actually have a, a, a real relationship with, because again, the, you know, one of the big challenges in all this is that, you know, it's very, it can be very hard for a company that is in a sort of rapidly innovating tech startup mentality to then be forced to adjust to the sort of process and regimentation and sort of methodical pace that manufacturing, frankly, you know, requires a lot. So, so how do you evaluate these companies? What are you looking for? And what are sort of maybe some like red flags? All cash up, all cash up front. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think a better way to, or a different way to ask this question is if Alex calls you two years from now with a new startup and wants to build an electric styled Morgan and he wants to, you know, build a, a a small amount like what's that process like and how does magna decide yeah we're gonna we're gonna take the leap or no kirsten i think there's a lot of due diligence in it right i mean if it's an incumbent oem it's easy because we know the platforms uh we kind of have over the last 60 years figured out which uh, oems or which platforms are optimistic with their volumes or you know, or conservative with the volume. So even when we're doing the systems, we have a viewpoint. We look at all the IHS data and all the databases, but, you know, we have a little bit of a look back and say, hey, this OEM on the platform ABC typically says they make 100,000 a year, but they've, you know, hit 85,000. So we discount that and that's how we plan in the capital allocation and so on and so forth. So that's the easy part. I think your question was, what if Alex or somebody else calls and says, hey, I want to make a car, you know, what do you think? Is uh, some of it, I think Alex meant it jokingly, but depending upon the risk profile, you got to pay the cash up front sometimes, right? Uh, Saying that here is the capital, you know, the capital is paid up front. uh, And if I'm using our existing capital base, then there is what we call a reservation capacity of the capacity, right? So you think you're going to make, you know, 10,000? Okay, then I'll reserve the capacity for 10,000. The lost opportunity for us is I'm holding it. I might not have the contribution margin, but you're going to pay the cost of capital, right? So the overheads and all of that are paid. Then we come up with a hybrid at that point to say, since I'm taking the risk along with you, what's the upside uh, as you start? You know, now, now we are tied together because we want you to succeed. Uh, hopefully, we are going to bring the scale and hit all the milestones. And as you grow, uh, there is, you know, a model to figure how we get part upside of that. And this is obviously after we feel comfortable that, you know, the, not just the financial model, but the product roadmap makes sense. and. You know, what they're talking about is realistic. Uh, and I, I think, Ed, you asked an interesting question. I always looked at Magna as 350 startups, you know, together. Yeah, we have a very interesting culture where the management of the division is a profit participator of that division, right? So they have a base compensation and a large part of their compensation is made on uh, the profit they make, the profitability of the division. Uh, 
So it, it applies all through Magna. So there is that entrepreneurial spirit uh, that's very, very prevalent on how you make decisions, why you make decisions. There's a healthy push and pull, right? When somebody takes on a, a project of some kind. Uh, and, and it's kind of uh, the same thing, you know, from a strategy perspective, what product lines we are in, how we are going to go into which markets, how we allocate capital is kind of the corporate look, but the execution and how we go and how we, uh, you know, do every day in a very agile way is basically 300 plus startups together, right? So that part of it is not new to us, how we deal with uh, startups. And in some cases, when we believe there is a technology that we need to look, we are not tied to saying, we got to do it inside Magna. It's got to be vertically integrated. We go out and say, you know what? How do I do this? In some cases, we we felt this tech needs to be done at scale. And if I make this only Magna, it will never get there. So we actually funded and started something on the outside, but they're allowed to supply to other tier ones. Uh, I'm curious, uh, are, if you're, are you at all a fan of low volume English sports cars like Morgan's? Yeah, as a person, yes. Okay. All right, well, as a business, it's a different story, right? I agree, because I own a Morgan, and I've had a long history with him. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So my, uh, my question is, I I'm frequently receive investor decks from companies that want to go into the um, like a continuation business. So they, they want to electrify classic designs in low volumes, but they have no expertise in skateboards or manufacturing, but they know how to cast a nice body <laughs> for a car. Yeah. So what is the minimum volume in all seriousness for someone if someone wanted to came to you and said, we would like to begin manufacturing bodies of, I'm trying to think of a car, Facel Vegas. <laughs> and we like, we like to sell, we think we can move 30,000 a year. Uh, but we, that's all we want to do is the marketing and the, the marketing and, and the showroom rental. That's it. So what is the minimum volume for before Magna could provide everything else? Because that would I think that would unlock some business, maybe not volume. So uh, Alex, there is a bunch of examples from the past, right? Like we did the Aston Martin, you know, the famous Aston Martin DB, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we did the Mercedes with the Gullwing, uh, you know, doors and so on. SLR? Yeah. The, uh... Yep. So, you know, if there is a clear roadmap, uh, which tells you, you know, it's five or 10,000 per year, but for so many years, uh, 
I, I don't think it's, you know, outside our realm of looking at things, but it's a balance between looking, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, here is 50,000 units, you want to do it for 10 years, I would rather use my capital there, right? Uh, but on the other hand, though, you're looking only at contract vehicle manufacturing, but the interesting part could be you can come and say, hey, what's your powertrain platform that I can use? And like you said, I'll put a top hat on and something else on and don't need to do the development of the entire powertrain. Right. That's a possibility. We have an electrical architecture platform or an ADAS that comes together up to level two plus, you know, which gives all these features, don't need to do all the development. So I think that is the bigger benefit that somebody has to look in. So they got to, they can avoid the R&D and the development costs and so on and so forth. And then on top, if you say, hey, here's 10,000 that you've got to make, I think it's a win-win for both sides. So when, um, I forget which leader of uh, Daimler said this, he said, we do not intend to become the Foxconn of anyone. Um, and yet it seems, I mean, do you consider Magna the Foxconn of automotive manufacturing? It seems to be a rather good business. <laughs> I wish the volumes in the automotive market were the same as what you find in the consumer uh, <laughs> electronics, Alex. <laughs> but because look, think about it. I look at it this way. If I make every vehicle in the world, it's about 83 million, right? And you can see the number of, and I think what iPhone does that in two quarters or something. Uh, so, I think the volume when they talk about becoming a Foxconn is a little bit different, right? Uh, in the the consumer expectations and functionality and the differentiation and all of that is really different. So I think the you know when you talk in terms of getting uh, somewhat a enabler status in the automotive industry is how do you have the right powertrain platform, right vehicle architecture that can flex a little bit within bounds. Uh, but give the flexibility to the OEM, whoever the OEM is, to say, I can differentiate, right, uh, by making the top hat or differentiating in how the vehicle feels. And hopefully you can do to some extent with the software. If that is the thought process, this, yes, then Magna can provide a lot of platforms and enable, uh, you know, people to come in or new entrants or new variants of existing OEMs to come come into market. I'm wondering from where you sit and especially you, you meet with so many different uh, legacy and also startup automakers, how do you see the next year or two unfolding in terms of automotive, which I understand is a super broad question, but I'm particularly interested if we're going to see even more EV startups pop up or from where you sit and where you un- and your understanding of the manufacturing um, industry, if there just isn't much more room um, for more, uh, I kind of like to think of the the functional aspect of mobility. Right, uh, one thing is call it a car, call it an SUV, or something else in the future. The idea is to get from point A to point B, right? And there are certain aspects of it which don't change. At least in the foreseeable future, you're going to have wheels and surface and something to sit in. or And, and then there is the experiential aspect of people saying, hey, I am outside the car. I have a certain lifestyle and an experience. As I transition into the car, 
you know, I want the same experience to come with me, right? Whether it's streaming music or, you know, whatever you're doing and the ease of things and so on. I think there'll be a lot more focus on that uh, part of it. Um, you know, going back, I think Alex talked about Morgan and other classic cars. Um, you know, it used to be a projection of personality and what you felt and, you know, style and so on. I always give the example, I, I my, when I bought my first car to my daughter, I started ranting off torque and, you know, horsepower and so on and so forth. And she asked me, where is where do I charge my iPhone? Uh, so I, I think a lot of those things are going to drive the models of mobility going forward. So I'm not so sure whether it's just the EV aspect. I think EV is driven by emission requirements today, right? It's not as much a pull from consumers saying, I want to drive EVs. Can I get an EV, right? Uh, started off that way, but people are saying, look, 0 to 60 in 2.7, yeah, it, it captures some people's imagination, but not all. Uh, so I think it's still driven by regulation and legislation, but I think when the cost curve drops to something different than what it is today, uh, we're going to see that, but I think the powertrain itself is not going to be the real differentiator. I think it's going to be the experience in the car and what else do you provide so that's what's going to drive the new entrants, I believe, or new models or, you know, or maybe the existing OEMs changing their models. So when a company comes to you, you know, you, and you sort of alluded to, to this a little bit, you know, obviously Foxconn does manufacturing, but, but you're, you have the ability to do so much more, right? I mean, you can, you have a, an, an EV platform, um, you know, you can do a bunch of the engineering uh, development work, you can validate you know, the vehicle, you provide the drivetrain. I mean, honestly, you could pretty much make a vehicle, uh, you know, that, that's pretty much the whole deal and and just someone else slaps a badge on it practically. So so my question is, from a business perspective, is it, you know, first of all, is, is one part of this business sort of more profitable or more appealing than others? But But also, you know, is it, in your interest to be doing as much of this stuff as possible, right? So like, like the more, you know, from, from development, from, from supplying the, the platform, supplying components, doing the development, engineering validation, and then, and then final contract manufacturing, is it, is the more things that people select from the menu the better it is for you? Or is there, is it not that simple? Obviously we would like them to select a lot of things from the menu, right? But we're, we're not tied to it, right? I think, uh, part of the reason why so many people come to us is we are not tied to saying you have to get the powertrain and the seat and the body from Magna. All we are saying is, look, we, we are here to do what's right for the vehicle specifications that you're asking for, right? And what is the most efficient, effective way to do it, not just from an engineering perspective, but to manufacture it at scale for a longer period of time, right? So if somebody comes way ahead in the design cycle, the economies and synergies could be better because we don't have to reinvent the wheel for the sake of reinventing the wheel. Uh, if there is certain uniqueness in what they're asking, yeah, for sure, definitely, then we look at what's the right thing. But there are some times where you say, you know, I move the mount this much, I change the track width by two inches, you know, you don't need to... Uh, a new underbody, right? I can use this platform and move forward. 
So I think those conversations are helpful, but we are not tied to saying, uh, you know, you have to be able to do this one way or the other. If you want a bunch of uh, systems and platform from us and you want to assemble, that's great. You want us to assemble, work through the engineering and show all the things that are there, which possible synergies could, you know, faster to market, more efficient, you know, eliminate a lot of testing and validation. You know, we're we're agnostic to that and we're looking at all of them. Of all the things that you do, the one that it seems to me to to be arguably the most constrained is is the contract manufacturing because you know you have a you have a factory and and then there's X amount of capacity and and from what I understand and and I don't know if this is still the case but but your your main factory in in Graz Austria um my understanding is that that's been sort of booked up for years and there's just not a lot of space there there have been sort of rumors for a long time about a about a North American factory potentially and I know you have the the Waymo uh, joint project in, in Detroit, but that's not like a your own factory. That's sort of a, it's a joint project is my understanding. So so I guess help us understand sort of when when do you get to the point where you're like, okay, we're ready to invest in this whole new factory. How much business do you have to have lined up? Because right, it, it's not like you're an OEM who's doing your own product planning and saying, okay, you know, this is our business model. We're going to do this. You have to pull together a bunch of different customers going forward, potentially I mean, 10 years? I don't know. how. So, so how, how does that, how do you make that decision to expand your manufacturing, uh, uh, contract manufacturing specifically capacity? So some of the variables you mentioned, Ed, right? I think uh, we, we have our long-term facility in Graz. Uh, about a few years ago, we expanded and added in Hoche, which is like 60 kilometers away, right? And, you know, we have the body shop there. Um, you know, and, and so one, and the one other thing that's not talked about is we have the footprint in China with our joint venture with BJEV. Uh, so we, we have the capacity, which we're just launching the Arc Fox brand. Um, you know, I think smaller numbers now wrapping up in the next two years. So we have capacity there. Uh, usually when we talk about you know, the investment, it depends. The big one is the paint shop, right? So maybe some of these new discussions we're having, it does the vehicle need to have paint or is it some other surface, right? If that starts coming into the play, uh, then it's not a big deal, right? Uh, it's, you know, you, you're talking about a line, uh, assembly line. Uh, we have all the facilities that do all the other systems. Uh, you have, you know, typically if you have two design cycles, then you go with the volume, right? Uh, so the, the planning becomes the building, whether you lease, you buy, how much, how much is expandable. And if you have a roadmap, it just helps more because now you can talk about the flexibility in the assembly line to say, you know, I'm building the stations in such a way that I can do 20,000. If I do two shifts, I can add one shift and I can get to 30. But there are this station number 24 and 26. If I add, you know, something plan ahead, uh, the bottleneck changes, right? So that's not anymore. So I can go from 30 to maybe 40,000 three shifts. So all of this comes into play as we think through. Uh, we have been always open to say in North America, if, if there is the right customer base or volume 
whether it's a combination of customers or one, we'll be very open to it. The big thing is the paint shop. Hmm. Well, I, I'm going to let Alex ask a question, but I'm going to be sitting here thinking about what could possibly uh, be an alternative to painting vehicles because that is yeah. a, a What's big the other challenging. Uh, the only one I can think of is rolled steel, like the Cybertruck, right? Isn't that oh. like that? Final wrap, maybe. <laughs> uh, wait, isn't there? Was, isn't there a very cool uh, a coating technology uh, um, that um, is embedded with like uh, uh, fibers that are charged that allows one to do like color shifting of the surface? <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. To be honest with you, I have not heard about the color shifting, but there's films and there is coating, right? And I think it begs the question again, right? If I, if I'm Personally, owning a vehicle that I'm putting in my garage or on the driveway, it's one thing. Uh, if I'm just going to get in a vehicle and go from point A to point B, do I really care, right? It's how does the inside look and what's the utilitarian aspect of it? What's the functionality of it? Uh, is the other aspect that there is a lot of discussion and debate and there is films, right? You can customize how you want the outside to look. Uh, the difference between mobility and catharsis is the dividing line of all transportation. So, um, yeah. my, uh, so uh, I, there was a famous quote from Morgan Stanley years ago that in the future, there will only be five car companies left in the world and Morgan. Let's set Morgan aside for now. Um, the five <laughs> car companies um, ostensibly are basically just brands um, that will internally have to bifurcate between mobility products, and catharsis. And each of these OEMs has an AMG or uh, an S series or whatever. They each have their performance division and then everything else is mobility. So um, in, in the future, why, I mean, why should any OEM actually manufacture anything? And why don't they all become marketing divisions for their own catharsis brands and then have a division that just operates a mobility as a service app and say a company like magna do the rest like is that the future of transportation um i don't know how how far away you're talking alex right <laughs> 20 uh, years 30 years 20 30 years yeah, i mean like uh, i i still struggle to see but again this is my bias maybe right of uh again i'm dating myself the the feeling of sitting in a car yeah, I guess, you know, you're handicapped and some of the features are helping you. It's not the same what it was 15, 20 years ago. It's safer. It's more comfortable. It's more convenient. And at the same time, you can have the thrill of driving when you want it. Maybe I'm one of those few that want it. I don't I'm with know. you. Okay, there you go. Uh, but I think it's still some ways away. But when it truly becomes a mobility, which... Uh, then your question becomes valid, right? But the question also is like, what is the differentiator from one to the other uh, in terms of providing the service? It, 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 at that point, it's just not the brand, right? You call it ABC or XYZ, who cares? So they need to provide the differentiation. And I think that's why so many OEMs have different architectures and you know, the electrical architecture is different. How you feel when you're sitting inside the car is different. Uh, so there is a little bit of identification there. I don't know whether that can be just given off at that point completely, uh, but a large part of it, yes. Uh, whether it's software, 
whether you have an operating system and the top layer becomes, you know, customizable and that's what they own. Yeah. Who knows 20 years from now? Well, it's, it kind of gets to the point that you were making earlier, which is uh, that electrification isn't necessarily what, um, well, an element of what's happening in the industry, the connected services and the software layer is really an area where, um, a buyers are looking at more closely, but also a way for companies to differentiate. So under Alex's scenario where you have a mobile services app and everything is, you know, essentially the same where the differentiation comes in is the software, the connected services and those sort of like added values for the point A to point B type of services or, you know, vehicles, not the performance vehicles, obviously. Yeah. And Kirsten, I think like you said, uh, again, there is different layers of uh, software, right? Uh, I don't think you need to create the windows, right? I'm just giving an example. Uh, whatever is that base operating system could be the same. Actually, that is one, in my humble opinion, that's one of the issues. Every OEM, every variant is driving for ADAS systems and collecting data. They're using the same data. Uh, do we all have to spend the money? I don't know, right? Um, everybody is going through the same testing process. So there is some consolidation and efficiency to be had in how everybody's spending the money. Uh, so you, you can have certain algorithms and features that are standard and differentiate. Like, for example, the lane keep or the lane centering is different in one vehicle versus the other. The algorithm is the same still. It changes because of the weight of the vehicle and the CG of the vehicle and how you as a customer uh, is expected or what you expect from that vehicle is what they're providing. But we do remelt and repour every time now. Uh, I, I just wish there was a way to get all of these things together. So a quick question then to follow up on that. The data data piece is interesting because you're right, there would be a lot of efficiencies but I don't know, and maybe you have, I'm sure you have better insight, but I don't ever see uh, competing automakers coming together as a consortium and sharing data, do you? Even though it's efficient, even if they would save a ton of money, do you think that they would actually do that? Because data has been, there's a lot of value in data, right? And so there's... There's yeah. a feeling that they don't want to share that or they want to protect that. Yeah, absolutely. If you're asking for consumer data, I see it. I get it, right? But if you're driving and figuring out whether that's the stop sign or that is the traffic light, it's no difference. Everybody's driving to come up to the same, uh, call it object and labeling it the same way, right? So you're not differentiating anything. That That's the point, right? Uh, but if I say my powertrain in my vehicle I'm picking up data from the consumer usage so I can figure out how to design my next driveline. I get it. That you want to own, right? But there's, there's two sets of data. Uh, you know, the one that provides differentiation I get you want to have, but there is a lot of data that is not differentiating. It's just for validation purpose, right? So uh, I'm going to ask a question on behalf of Mr. Niedermeyer, who's been very shy about this question. Um, Mr. Niedermeyer's book, Ludicrous, <laughs> The Unvarnished History of Tesla Motors, talks a lot about um, Tesla's efforts to automate manufacturing. And as we know, they've had 
some suboptimal results and have had to walk back plans. So uh, what is, I mean, I, I would imagine that Magna has wrought a, a lot of efficiencies out of manufacturing because you've had to manufacture on behalf of so many OEM clients. Is there um, a singularity? Is there a total automation scenario that you are re- st- striving to reach that Musk has failed to execute on? I mean, what is, is it possible to automate 100% of manufacturing? Uh, so my last eight years was the chief technology officer of Magna, right? Uh, so one of the big things <laughs> uh, for us was automation and advanced robotics. Uh, the way I like to put it as, like you have a, a dollar uh, as a cost or, or price, and you have X percent material, X percent labor, X percent indirect, and the rest is your contribution margin, right? Uh, which is your profit and uh, depreciation and so on and so forth. And the reason for doing automation is a couple of things. One, using the same amount of capital, but you can produce more. Right, or I'm reducing labor content. Uh, so whatever that six, eight, twelve percent, depending on which country you are, you're replacing, uh, and you know that that's how you're looking at the equation. And some functions are dual. A lot of people say a person standing at the end of the press is just picking parts and putting them in the bin. That's the obvious thing, but that person is also looking whether that part has the hole and the you know, the nut and the orientation, he's doing inspection at the same time, he or she at the end of the line. So if you break down all of these things, there is certain aspect of it, which is definitely you can do automation. Now, again, whether you're in a high cost country or a low cost country, and is it worth doing it? That's one piece. And are the volumes going to change? You know, from this OEM on this platform, the volumes today are 600, tomorrow it could be 500. So having a, uh, call it allotted automation, uh, fixed automation is not a good thing there because I can have five people working one day in a U-shaped cell and I can reduce it to three when my volumes are lower, right? So all this comes into play. Huge amounts of uh, activity automated where we can have higher amount of predictability. There are some cases, a good example I'll tell you is we make a, a latch for a car, right? Uh, a car, car door. There, there is 12 people in the line and what their fingers can do if you try to automate it, the dexterity of a human hand uh, is a huge project. Do I want to do that right now, right? Not really. So we took that project on and we are in phase two where we drop, I, I know from 12 people to six, we're doing certain functions with the robot and the others, it doesn't make sense. So it's a phased approach. In other places where we said, you know what, if I can find a way to get the robot and a human to work together, and I can get rid of the fences and the light curtains and so on and so forth, absolutely we'll do it, right? So we look at it from that perspective, not not automation for the sake of automation today. I think it's got some ways to go for sure, uh, if you see some some of our plants, all you see is robots and nothing else, right? You hardly see humans. Very, very few. Uh, in some cases, it's exactly the opposite. All you see is like rows of people, <laughs> you know, putting wire harnesses together or things together. It doesn't make sense. 
So that's that's a very complex question, Alex, right? But uh, automation is definitely, definitely one of the key for anybody in the field of, or in the, who's dealing with manufacturing today, they have to look at automation and advanced robotics, but only where it makes sense. That was exactly the answer I was hoping for. Thank you. <laughs> the Tesla investor community is going to hate. And that's why I love it. <laughs> because it's a, it's a complex truth. So, yeah. yeah, and I know I know we're we're getting close to being out of time here, but I just kind of wanted to maybe build on that a little bit because again, we are in this you know environment that's really new for the auto industry, all this excitement and and you know I think like as far as the general public is concerned, you know we've seen how sort of technology like the iPhone, for example, has just transformed our lives overnight. By comparison to that, the auto industry, you know, and and people can be very dismissive about how sort of stodgy or slow moving and and all that that the, the auto industry was. But at the same time, I think particularly if you look at, at autonomous vehicles, you know, uh, 10 years ago or so when when sort of we were first sort of starting to understand that autonomous vehicle technology was, was coming, maybe less than 10 years, uh, you know, there was sort of this sense that, well, you know, um, Google or someone is going to, you know, crack the code on this and then sort of all manufacturing will basically be uh, sort of that term, the Foxconn, and and that was presented in a sort of derogatory way that that the tech companies would be sort of calling all the shots, and and you know the the manufacturers would sort of be able to 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 sort of maybe you know steal a crumb here or there uh, a, a profit where they could. That seems to have changed a little bit now, where you know AV developers are are partnering with you know major manufacturing companies uh, in order to turn these you know this technology into reality. I think there's an understanding that that technology is really hard. Do you, you know, but, but again, at the same time, you have companies that have, you know, startups with no manufacturing experience or infrastructure, uh, you know, getting, having these huge, you know, valuations. Do you think that, that, you know, in these, in the talks that you have with, with whether it's startups or existing companies, is there more of an appreciation for not just manufacturing, but, but sort of validation, um, the way sort of engineering happens in the auto industry um, and the standard to which it has to be, uh, you know, pro these products have to be sort of made very robustly compared to, say, a consumer electronics good. Is there some appreciation of that Do do uh, that, that you've seen over the last few years? Is there farther to go on that? Do you think that that, that sort of the tech folks who are coming at this from the tech side still have a ways to go in, in terms of, of understanding sort of how not only important, but sort of hard to do man you know manufacturing that, that piece of this is it's a long question ed so ed if you had asked me this question in the beginning of the show i would have taken the whole one hour and not let you talk <laughs> <at all. laughs> so i'm glad you asked and me so this will officially be the last question then <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah. swami you are a great guest so I, I think it's just amazing uh again I, I might be biased but i'll say it anyway to be provocative right is Anybody who thinks the automotive industry is stodgy hasn't lived in it and doesn't understand engineering to the fullest extent from a systems perspective, right? Uh, there is very few industries who can talk about as many disciplines of fundamental science and applied engineering as automotive, right? And imagine you're putting your 16-year-old in this complex machine and letting them go and they're safe. Where else can you say that? And just to have that robustness and reliability uh, in a piece of machinery, right? I, I don't see it anywhere. So uh, I, I, 
don't I don't mean to be pejorative for software or for anybody else. You know, absolutely, it's a wonderful field and it's adding a lot of things in terms of functionality and features and additional safety to the to the auto. But uh, it cannot do everything by itself, right? It, it still is controlling certain aspects of an automotive. And where else can you say you buy something and you want it to last for 10 years and want it to perform exactly the way you did the first year? And by the way, you can't say I'm going to, I'm waiting for an update, so it's okay. I'm going to leave at 30%, right? So uh, what do you mean? And, <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? And I talk to some of the youngsters who come in too, and, and they look at once the, the the significance of what they're doing dawns, right? It's it's a phenomenal feeling to see their faces like, what? I'm going to design this, and it's got to live at minus 15 and plus 115 degrees and cycle a million times? Yeah. And after you do that, we're going to put it in a vehicle, right? So I think that system interface and system thinking needs to sink in. Uh, is it being recognized a little bit more? Definitely, yes. But I think it's still a long way to go in understanding this. And, and you know, part responsibility is our own industry that doesn't do a good job explaining this. We should be doing this from, you know, like middle school and high school and uh, bringing out the concept of what it really means, right? I have to ask a question. It's It's the final very quick bonus question, and you can do whatever you like with it. Without naming names, although I hope you will, has any OEM come to you? Let me reframe, reframe this. I know that when an OEM has come to Magna to build a piece of the vehicle, that it will probably be built better than if the OEM had done it itself. That's my personal experience. Has any OEM ever come to you with a, a part of a vehicle or an entire vehicle that they wanted you to manufacture? It was just going to be absolutely terrible. And can you? Tell us what that example might be. <laughs> <laughs> nice question, Alex. But unfortunately, I won't be able to tell you. But the answer is yes, they have. Of course. Right? And many a times, uh, although laboriously and politely, uh, we have come to a conclusion that there is a better way to do it. But it was their idea, not ours. Really? Mm. Was it perhaps a convertible top? <laughs> I won't go any further. I see. And have you ever been approached by Morgan or TVR or any of the English companies? Not that I'm aware of, Alex. What a mistake no. they made. Oh, what a mistake. <laughs> it, it's not really a British sports car if it's not made in a shed, though, is, is my understanding. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Swami. Thank you for humoring me among my more professional colleagues. So, Kirsten, no. do you want to do you want to take us home? Let's take us home. Well, Alex failed at asking. It's because Alex hasn't worked as a journalist or a columnist in so long. He's forgotten how to, you know, lead someone into giving away all their secrets. <laughs> but I'll, I'll give you a, a lesson on the side. So, I mean, thank you so much for coming and uh, joining us and giving us and our listeners a bit of an education on manufacturing and where it's headed. And listeners of the Atonicast, until next time. Thanks again. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, guys. It was my pleasure. Bye.